This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Welcome back to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia. That hasn't changed. And before we get into today's interview, I just want to do a little housekeeping. Uh, I don't know if you follow the socials, but if you don't, you should, because I have merch. In addition to having a t-shirt shop on live, I also have, you can buy directly from me, iron-on and so-on patches. I'm selling them for $3 a piece, including free shipping within the U.S., Um, If you're outside the U.S., get in touch with me and we'll figure something out because I don't want you to be paying a ton for a patch. That's ridiculous. I'm also going to be having um, buttons and stickers soon. So if you want something free, those two are free. Get in touch again. Let me know. No matter where you're from, we'll figure out the shipping. Uh, Other than that, I am wrapping up interviews for season one and have started already scheduling interviews for season two. So if you want to be on the show, send me an email at titanictalkline at gmail.com, and you, too, can be just like all the super amazing guests that I have on my show, like this one, today. Every time. Uh, Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Uh, Could you please do me the great honor of introducing yourself? Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, my name is Sally Nilsson. And I live in uh, the southwest of the UK in Somerset. Which sounds beautiful, by the way. And um, why don't you tell me uh, your Titanic story? I I already know a little bit about it, but love to hear it in your own words. So um, briefly, when I was 14 years old, I was uh, in a pub in Southampton um, with my grandfather called Alf. And he was sat in this armchair drinking a pint of pale ale and smoking woodbines. So I'm 14 years old, a moody teenager. And um, I'm sorry if it pings occasionally. I I haven't sorted out that notification. And, um, yeah, so I'm sat with him. And I don't know how we got around to the subject, but he just turned around to me and he said, uh, did you know that your great-grandfather was um, at the wheel? He was steering Titanic when it hit the iceberg and then many years afterwards um, he shot someone and went to prison and he wrote a diary in in, uh, prison about it and I thought that was absolutely incredible you know and I asked him a few questions about it because it it was his wife his previous wife Uh called Phyllis May Um, it was her connection she's my grandmother Uh and actually uh, Robert Hitchens um, his wife was six months pregnant um, when he set off from Southampton on the Titanic. What a great time. So being 14, I, you know, I, I listened to it. It was great. And then I went back to being a teenager and I sort of forgot all about it <laughs> until 2005. I'd read something by this fantastic guy called Phil Gowan. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you know, the, we had the internet then and I'd read this sort of mini bio that he'd done about Robert Hitchens. It was called mm-hmm. Whatever Happened to Robert Hitchens. And I got a bit more fascinated um, and I went to a Titanic conference, which was really, really good down in Southampton. Um, And I actually, I met Phil and I met uh, uh, Melina Dean Mm -hmm. and uh, she was the baby who was passed over into a lifeboat. Ah, Yes, yes, Melina Dean. 
Yeah, so she was the last, rem- you know, the last remaining Titanic um, survivor. Right. And, and it really started getting me interested. So I found out a bit more and then it got to about 2009 and I thought, everybody's written about Molly Brown because she was mm-hmm. in the lifeboat, lifeboat six with Robert Hitchens. Right. Um, but Robert Hitchens had this terrible reputation um, for being a coward and a bully for not going back to survivors. And I'm quite a good storyteller. I, I used to be not very educated, but I like to tell a, a story. And I just thought to myself, can I write a story about Robert Hitchens? Can I write his version of events? Because I felt sorry for him. And I mean, we'll come back to this later on when we talk, but I'm very much into justice and the underdog Mm -hmm. and fairness and things like that. And so um, I thought, okay, well, in 2012, it's going to be the 100 year anniversary of Titanic sinking. Uh So I went for it. I went up to York University and I did a writing course. I, I, I grabbed everything I could find about how to write And then in 2010, I wrote the book while I was researching, just, you know, I got it all in my head and then I hand wrote it all. And then I typed it all in the computer. I found a publisher um, called the History Press who specialise, they they do quite a lot of Titanic stuff. Um, So in September 2010, I handed over my book. It was published in 2011 for the Titanic anniversary and uh, the rest is history. I realized I had my mouth open the entire time. That's just an absolutely <laughs> okay. incredible story. You looked a little bit like a cop. <laughs> it's a great story. First of all, because I have to admit that I don't think I would have believed my grandfather at 14 if he told me that. I'd probably have been like, whatever. I was not the most yeah. accommodating of teenagers. But <laughs> I was wondering. So you started this all in 2000 and, um, 2010. You... You'd seen the Cameron film by then, I imagine. Uh, yes. And uh, I suppose at that point, I mean, because it, it was very clever. I saw it when it first came out because I'm very old. I'm I'm 57. And uh, I saw it when it first came out. And uh, I mean, it was very clever. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. really understand so much all the computerization of it. And, and of course, now it's a little bit dated. Um, I wasn't over keen on DiCaprio and um, Winslet's <laughs> characters because, I, you know, I, I didn't really get that. What, sure. what was very interesting, though, was um, the collision scene was brilliant. And mm-hmm. um, the bit with Robert Hitchens and everything, that part of it was really good. And when I did all the research afterwards, I realised that a lot of that Cameron got from Robert Hitchens' testimony at New York and and in, oh, wow. in uh, the British Wreck Inquiry. Um, so it was partly from Lightoller and, and a lot from Robert Hitchens. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that came out from the film that I only discovered later on, which was quite hilarious, actually, they had this character playing Robert Hitchens in a lifeboat with Molly Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, Molly Brown's doing all her thing and shouting at Robert Hitchens. And he, in the film, pipes up, mm-hmm. if you don't shut that hole in your mouth, there'll be one less person in the lifeboat. Yep. Okay, so there were some funny things about that. Firstly, Robert Hitchens was not a tall, skinny guy with a Cockney accent from London. <laughs> he wasn't a Cockney guy. He was a short, five foot six, very stocky, brown curly hair, steely blue eyes, really strong accented lad 
from uh, 30 years old from Cornwall with a very strong accent. And the person who actually said those words was in Lifeboat 8. Who was it? I, don't, I can't remember the name of the oh, guy, but he I was in no Lifeboat idea. 8. And, um, and, and really, you know, the thing is, is that they, they made such a massive thing about Molly Brown being this heroine, being so fantastic. But she was a big personality with a big voice. And as soon as she got off the Carpathian in New York, she went straight to the New York Times. Robert, did, Robert Hitchens didn't stand a chance. So because I am very, very special interest, hyper-focused, I read a lot about Molly Brown. And for me, I'm very sorry to all the fans of Molly Brown. I didn't think she was that amazing a person. That's just my opinion because I, I read so much about her. Mm-hmm. But when I read the book, when I wrote the book, if Robert Hitchens had been the coward and the bully and an awful person and really terrible, I would have written that. Sure. I would have written that. I just wanted to write his side. Mm-hmm. But um it, this is not the person that I found. So as far as the film's concerned, back to original question. Uh, <laughs> it's a good film. I prefer A Night to Remember. Okay. That has a better portrayal of, of Hitchens. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, young people today don't really like black and white films so much. You know, they like a, a lot of action, a lot of special effects and everything else. But How many explosions are there in A Night to Remember? Say that again. How many explosions are there in A Night to Remember? Maybe we can get the young people involved. <laughs> it's yeah. a much more subtle film than the Cameron film, but it is. I, I think that you have the same opinion that a lot of people have, which is that the Cameron film is, you know, fun, modern, and dramatic, but the Night to Remember film is a more accurate depiction of how things probably possibly were. It was. It was a bit of a mixture, but... Um, the Cameron film, um, the guy who did the um, his a lot of well, all of it really. He worked very closely with Cameron. Um, was a guy called Don Lynch. Um, yes. Is a guy called Don Lynch, and uh, he he's written um, you know um, into the abyss or whatever it is about the Titanic, and mm-hmm. he's he, he's written he's written fantastic books, and one of the most important books, which I can't remember what it is now. And I researched a lot from that, and actually Don Lynch he wrote my little forward on on the inside of the book oh. and even though within the book there were that I had my own theory about what mm-hmm. happened on, during the collision I was able to talk to such important experts really really important experts who have written the main books and they were so supportive of me you know um so I felt very very lucky and and Don Lynch uh, you know was just a great guy mm-hmm. I think maybe as an adult it's easier for me to watch the movie and give a lot more sympathy to the characters. Cause you know, I rewatched this movie now I'm, I'm in my thirties and the movie came out when I was eight years old. And when, you know, your emotional depth at eight is it, it's very shallow. Yeah. Um, I'll admit that the first time I watched it, it's like what I absorbed was questionable, but yes. um, looking back now, especially at that collision scene, I am, it's easy to ascertain that, very high tension that you know there's that one instance where Murdoch yells at Hitchens is it hard over just to like be sure it's like you know I'm sure he knows that of course it's hard over why wouldn't it be he gave the order Hitchens is a reliable seaman but it's like I just have to be sure and he even glances down just for a second it's like is it is it it is it's just that moment of everyone we're we're panicking and we need to do something can we do more can we do more 
And I think that that did a really good job of building that. So for me, by the time it got to the lifeboat moment, I didn't necessarily think of it as as black and white negative as being mean, but more just like, this has been the worst night of my entire life, bar none, and you're yelling at me. Well, the thing about Robert is that he was in a tiny wheelhouse. This wheelhouse is very, very small. It has it has all the blinds pulled down so not a chink of light can get out because it would affect the um, the vision for officers outside. And so he could only, you know, he was on his own. There was nobody else in the wheelhouse or in the, anywhere in the wheelhouse. They were right. all doing different things. And so um, he couldn't do anything. But from my perspective, Robert Hitchens, he heard the bell ring up in the crow's nest and he heard the phone ring behind him and nobody was answering it. So mm-hmm. he knew something really massive was was happening, but he didn't know what it was right. until he got um, Moody coming running in from behind, um, mm-hmm. having heard the three bells ring really hard. Um, and then he picked up the phone and he says, mm-hmm. what do you see? And, and um, Frederick Fleet and, you know, Reginald Lee say, you know, iceberg. And then um, Murdoch comes in, you know, iceberg dead ahead, mm-hmm. hard as starboard. I mean, hard as starboard is the most iconic, you know, it's, for right. a disaster movie, you know, it's such an iconic phrase, um, mm-hmm. you know, hard as starboard. And, uh, and you know, Robert Hitchens, he put his whole weight behind the, hair, uh, behind the wheel and spun it over. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, he, t- he took it as far as he could. And then it was, and then he said, you know, harder port. Mm-hmm. You've got this, this huge ship, you know, um, 46,000 46, tons or whatever it is. You know, loads and loads of tons of ship. Um, and it's going almost at full speed. And there's no way that ship is going to turn you know, they, they have this thing about a 37 second turning um, mm-hmm. possibility, which I don't agree with. I just don't agree with that. Um, at the end of the day, the iceberg, it came out of a brilliantly clear, calm night. There were two lookouts up in the crow's nest. It bore down on them. There was not hope in hell that they were going to miss it. And right. basically they were going too fast. They crashed into an iceberg and that's it. That's what they yeah. did. And I... I've touched on it in a couple of previous episodes, but one of the things that I talk about that I wish more people would talk about is exactly how much guilt followed any of the survivors, um, and especially members of the crew. Because, first of all, you know, society wasn't always gracious with men who survived. It was still very black and white, and there were very hard lines. But... Also, I guess in some way they were blamed for not doing more, even though, you know, as we just discussed, what else were you supposed to do? There is one steering wheel on this ship and it's all the way where it needs to be. That's it. The thing is, is the the survivor's guilt is is an incredible one, really. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for your listeners, I mean, just get this, just get this. It's a Sunday night. It's 1140. It's freezing cold. It's a religious day. People are in their beds. There's a scratch crew. There's hardly anybody around whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the, the people who survived, who were the main people, just listen to what happened to them. Reginald Lee, he was up in the crow's nest. Um, he, he had been thrown out of the Royal Navy before for being an alcoholic. 
The year after Titanic, he was found dead in a seaman's mission and they thought it was a heart attack with complications through alcohol. Frederick Fleet, mm-hmm. many years later in the 60s, you know, he'd lost his wife in Southampton. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we can we can say and we can surmise that what he went through on Titanic, he hanged himself in his garden. Yeah. You've got Robert Hitchens. Um, Robert Hitchens, everything he went through, what he had to say, all these different things, what happened to him about, you know, being um, sent to South Africa away from his family, the PTSD. Well, they, they called it neurasthenia um, in those days, but it was really kind of PTSD. He tried to kill himself. First of all, he tried to shoot himself in the head and then he tried to cut his wrists in prison. These were the three main people, them and Charles Lightoller. Yeah. You know, they were the people, they were the people who survived. I mean, you have Boxall and Pittman, but they weren't anywhere near, you know. And so those three people died really tragically as a result. And there were other people. There was a guy called Mayor. I think he shot himself. There were other people and Mm -hmm. there would have been a lot of survivor's guilt. In fact, I I did... um, I did a documentary, which is really good. It's on UK Play and Yesterday in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, but it was uh, filmed in Atlanta and in England. And it's called Titanic Stories from the Deep. And it's about, and, and the episode is called Survivor's Guilt. I don't know if, I don't know if Robert had survivor's guilt. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. think he did. I, I'm a psychotherapist, you know, um, you know, I I don't write about it. I don't have any research that Robert Hitchens had survivor's guilt, but mm-hmm. my God, he was mentally, mentally really challenged from that experience. Let's say it sounds like the rest of his life was spent really fraught and just trying to cope with everything that had happened, which as you mentioned the others, some didn't end up making it through. And most of the men who were on that watch died that night. So it was a very sad, devastating and isolating incident in a way. Yes, well, it it was. But the thing is, you know, back in 1912, you're in Southampton, there'd been massive coal strikes. um, And then going on towards, you know, 1930s, that those those decades in in Britain anyway, were really, really tough. And all anybody cared about was earning money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was really important for Robert Hitchens. He needs to earn money because he already had, um, you know, so my grandmother would have been born and he went on to have two sons. So he had five children. He loved his wife. He, he loved the sea. And he had been a quartermaster for 12 years before he went on Titanic. Mm-hmm. And then by the time he, he was sent over to um, South Africa to basically keep him out of the way, really. So he didn't say anything, in my um, opinion. And um, he never had a, another job like that until 1940, 1941, you know. Um, it, it, was, it was tragic. It ruined his life, but, yeah. but it was partly because of what was going on in the country, the fact that there was a huge recession in the 30s, a depression in the 30s, um, and also because it was a terrible time in 1912 as well. That's probably, yeah all kinds of factors just weigh into it being extra hard but did he ever go back to having a career at the sea 
So after Titanic, um, apart from Harold Lowe, who went back to uh, Wales, mm-hmm. um, he went back to Wales, but the other officers that survived all stayed um, with the White Star Line, uh, apart from Edwin Lee, who died the year after, but they all stayed with the White Star Line and they all kept their jobs. Mm-hmm. But Robert Hitchens, who was really... <laughs> you know, apart from Lytle are the biggest, you know, the biggest witness. Right. Um, he was he was sent over to South Africa. And if you come from a little fish, fishing village in Cornwall and then you go to boiling hot Cape Town, it's such a change for any human being to be able to cope with. Um, I, I think it was really hard. And so he, he wasn't really doing anything over there. He was sailing on ships, but never as a quartermaster. But when he came, um, he came back from Cape Town um, in 1914 because the First World War was just about to start. So uh, I didn't know this when I wrote the book um, and it was found out afterwards because um, he had had these symptoms, these really horrible symptoms like PTSD, and he was invalided out of the First World War. And I thought that was it. I didn't think he actually um, was in the war, but he was. He went to a sanitarium and um, recovered from his illness, his mental and physical illness. And then he did go over to France in an artillery unit. And then he came back and he didn't want to be in the sea anymore. And he took his family back to Torquay. Mm -hmm. But he was apparently, which was very interesting, his family and some other people had said he seemed to have a lot of money and he was dressed really poshly and he just had money. And, and he, he had enough money to help his wife set up in a B&B in Torquay and to um, have a part share in a paddle steamer, a little pleasure boat. I don't know if it was a paddle steamer, but it was a pleasure boat called the Queen Mary. Mm-hmm. So even though he did get a loan for that, he still had his own money. But the timing was horrendous for him. So he was captaining in that. I mean, that was absolutely fantastic for him. Right. But he only he only had a few years with that because the depression came and money ran out. And this um, this guy called Harry Henley, who Robert stupidly got a loan from him as well, started threatening the family, giving them such a terrible time that Florence couldn't handle it and their relationship just broke down. And she went back to Southampton with the children. Um, and Robert Hitchens became totally destitute. He lost the boat. He lost his any chance of working. He lost his wife and his kids. He lost his house. And this is where the really big thing happened. Yeah. I, I will admit I don't know much about the incident itself. Only that, you know, I read something where it was like a brief thing where I was like and then he shot someone I went to prison I was like well that's a very very brief explanation but I can only imagine that after going I mean I'm not saying in any way saying that murder is okay murder is is not okay mm-hmm. but you know I can see how we got to that point is I think what I'm trying to say so um, I, if you want me to, I'll just give you a brief idea of what happened. Sure. So feeling so terrible, he started drinking. And he wasn't a drinker as far as um, my research showed mm-hmm. because he came from um, a, this fishing village called uh, Newlyn in, in the south, very, very southwest of the uh, British Isles. Okay. And where he came from, it, it was all abstinence. They were... Um, they were very, very religious. They didn't drink. They were Methodist, primitive Methodists, very pure. Um, but whatever, for whatever reason, it got to the point in the in the 1930s when he 
Um, and, and what had happened with Harry Henley losing absolutely everything and mm-hmm. with everything with Titanic, with his mental health. Yeah. He was drinking a lot, whiskey, drinking a lot of whiskey. And um, it had enough. So he traveled around the country trying to get work. And what he'd do, uh, which was quite popular in those times, he'd write a note and it would say, Robert Hitchens, Helms of the Titanic with the loss of all these souls and everything. And he would sell them to people. And uh, he managed to get some money, enough money to buy a silver, um, a little silver gun. And all he wanted to do was to shoot Harry Henley and kill himself. Uh, because his life was ruined. So he came back down to Torquay and uh, he went into some pubs and there's all these witnesses that were there and he was getting more drunk and more drunk. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he um, got in a taxi to uh, Harry Henley's um, address, knocked on his door, Harry Henley opened the door and he said, uh, you know, what are you doing here, Bob? And uh, Robert said, um, I'm on the floor and I want you to pick uh, I want you to pick me up. And Harry Henley said, I wouldn't give you a penny if you were the last man on earth. And if you wouldn't if you weren't so drunk, I'd I'd beat you up. Mm-hmm. So Robert took the silver revolver out of his pocket and he shot um Harry, um, but it just glanced off the side of his head. It was a flesh wound. Mm-hmm. And then he did another shot and it went into the wall. And then Harry Henley punched him in the face. Wow. And Robert went staggering back into the courtyard and fell on the floor. And Harry went uh, running down the hill towards the police station. And Robert sort of got up and went to follow him down the hill. And then he collapsed on the floor and uh, he got the gun and he tried and he, he put it to his head and he pulled the trigger and he missed. Oof. I mean, honestly, Robert Hitchens, he wasn't great at um, getting things right. And um, so he was unconscious. He got picked up by the police um, but the the judge, he took on board the fact that he had a, a completely clean record before this. Mm-hmm. He had been in the First World War. He had got his British War medals. He'd been on the Titanic. He was very much down and out. Mm-hmm. And he could have got the hangman's noose, but he didn't. He got five years hard labor at yeah. uh, Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. And his wife went to visit him there. And uh, actually, his soon-to-be son-in-law came to ask for his um, fiance's hand in marriage over at Parkhurst to Robert. <laughs> and Robert did write. He wrote a diary, but no one's ever found the, the complete writings. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, uh, my second cousin, Simon Medhurst, who's a, a really great guy, yes. he, um, he's got some of the notes, um, and I've, you know, I've got copies of those. But but nothing new has come out. I, I get people coming to me and trying to ask me for more information. And, and I work so hard. I worked so hard on the research I did. I haven't got any more. And I've moved yeah. on, really. And it wasn't, you see, the thing is, Alexandra, it wasn't really purely about Titanic. Mm-hmm. It was about Robert Hitchens. It yeah. was about putting the record straight and trying to change history and and trying to help this guy who'd been vilified all this time. Yeah. I think that's really important though, is that I've always found what allures Titanic to me in the long term is the fact that it is a human story at the end of it is that these are people who are involved with it. It's like, yeah, it's cool to talk about it as a concept of like the ship and it was beautiful and all of that. But at the end of the day, these were, wives and sons and daughters and children and nephews and fathers and 
the mothers. These were real people who had lives and the people who survived still lost a considerable amount. Yes, they did. And, and I mean, it's, I, I do talks at schools and, and the thing about it is, is that it was about the Elizabethan era. It was about the nemesis, about the, you know, everything was just about to change. And it works really well in English. It works really well in drama. Mm-hmm. You know, can you imagine the collision scene in the lifeboat, all the different things you can do? Yeah. It's historically, there's so much. I mean, there's 2,000 Titanic books yeah. coming from all different aspects. Um, and some of them are totally crazy. Some of them are really interesting. And 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 you're right, it's a human story. And, and it is really nice when you can pick one person mm-hmm. to talk about. And for me, I, it was Robert. And I think I made him the most real when I found out two weeks before the anniversary, so it couldn't be included in the book, mm-hmm. I found out what happened to him after 100 years because nobody knew what happened to him when he died. And I discovered after really, really just banging on doors and making calls and going back and back and back again and again and finding out that he was not buried at sea or anything like that. He was, um, he ended up in like a, a, a poor seaman's grave with two other people mm. in, um, in a, a, a graveyard in Aberdeen called Trinity Cemetery. And um, so I went up there, I, t- I made a cross, I took some flowers for him and his mates that were in the grave with him. Mm-hmm. And um, I just went up there and I stood uh, at the grave and it was, um, there were all the sort of newspapers and radio and all these people, TV and everyone else was there. And once I managed to get rid of them, um, it was raining and windy and I just stood there with Robert and it was so emotional and I cried and everything else, but I just hope that he was looking up at me and think and just thinking, you know, thanks, mate. You know, thanks, great granddaughter for for telling a different story. The fact that he was just following orders. He was just doing his job. He wasn't yeah. a hero. He wasn't a coward. And, and I don't like terms like heroes and cowards. The people that were on the crew, this is their job. Mm-hmm. This is what they were paid to do. And uh, and and I know that he loved his family. I know he adored his wife. And I just thought he was a great guy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just doing that. And that made him really, really human. And and I will always love him. And, and I love the memorabilia. Well, not the direct stuff from Titanic, but all the things that, right. all the experiences that I've had and the pictures I've got of him, you know. I have had friends and loved ones in my life who have had, who have very serious mental illness and mental illness can turn great people into horrible demons sometimes. And it's not like they want to say mean things or do crazy things. You know, I don't think yeah. a single person when they're clear headed is like, wow, I'm really glad I flipped that table yesterday. Ah, oh, just was so cathartic. That's, I, yes. that, that's not the impression that I get. No. And 
I think that it's important to acknowledge that these were people that had multiple sides to them. And especially when you've been through such extensive trauma, it it messes with your head. They do, you know, all these scans now that find out that things like depression and trauma will physically change your brain, can change the physical balance of chemistry in your brain. They can make perceptible differences in the actual landscape of your head, you know, the thing that controls everything you do. Yeah, they can. And I mean, this is the first time I've ever spoken about this and I'm quite happy to because I'm completely out about it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's something to think about Mm -hmm. now that the stigma and the taboo is is not there, like like the taboo of stiff up a lip and be strong and don't show your feelings and everything else. So because of what I wrote in the research, I, I and, and I was really interested in trauma. That was one of the reasons I got into psychotherapy. And um, and then um, as time went on, I mean, I had my own difficulties and I never really knew what they were because I'm a very resilient person and mm-hmm. I've had jo- really good jobs and everything else. But there was ne- there was something not quite right. I never used to fit in. I never mm-hmm. I just there was I just didn't really understand who I was. And then last year when I was 56, I was diagnosed autistic. And, uh, um, and then, um, and then I discovered I was also ADHD as well. So yeah. And and what was really interesting about that was it made sense. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't been autistic and ADHD, I wouldn't have been able to write the book because it was such a, a laser focused such a special interest and and the work and everything else around me was lost to my absolute need to be able to do this thing so when I discovered um about the the autism I I thought well I'm coming out straight away and so I changed my um my niche and now I work with autistic and ADHD dyslexic dyspraxic Tourette's OCD people and that's what I do great now, going back to Robert Hitchens, mm-hmm. and I don't know this, and we, we don't, we'll never know this. We will no never know, know this. But when, um, when I was calculating for fun, no, when I was oh. researching Robert Hitchens, I managed to find this incredible guy. He's one of the leading experts in handwriting in the UK, in London. And I contacted him and I said, look, I've got some of Robert Hitchens notes and and scrawlings and his signature. Mm -hmm. And I I really want to find out if you can help me learn about his personality. Mm. So he was such a lovely guy. And he said, I'll do it for you for free. And it would normally be hundreds of pounds. He said, I'm so interested in your story. It's such an amazing story. So I sent off the stuff and and it came back with the most incredible report. Um, And I've, I, I wish I'd um, got it in front of me now for this interview. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The thing is, is that I'm going to reread that now mm-hmm. because I would like to know whether dear Robert Hitchens could possibly have been neurodivergent. Because when you read <clears throat> the notes from the handwriting expert, there are some possible flags there that make me think that he could have been ADHD or he, I'm not necessarily autistic, but that just the way he was and the way he behaved and acted and everything else, I wonder, you know, because it does go down generations and, uh-huh. and neurodivergence comes from caveman days. You know, it's something inherent in our 
in our whole bodies from hundreds of thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm related to him. So who knows? I mean, that's the first time I've mentioned it, but I'm very, very happy. I'm a very happy um, yeah. autistic person. And lots of autistic people love Titanic. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have autism. I, I have ADHD. But yeah, being diagnosed neurodivergent, it was the same kind of thing. Or it was like, oh, I don't fit in because I literally don't fit in. Got it. Understood. And it was just kind of easier to be able to pass on for that. But you're right in that it does come down through, you know, generations when you're able to track certain behaviors. And it's probably a distinct possibility. I mean, obviously, like, we can't say for sure. There's no way to know for sure. But, no. if you know, between your research and the thoughts from the handwriting expert and just what we now know about mental health, it sounds like a really distinct possibility to me. And it could be, I mean, I don't need to follow it up. I don't need to do anything about it, you know, and, and, and I don't really want to do anymore because the thing Mm -hmm. is, Alexandra, over time, people are so interested. Mm -hmm. They're going to keep digging and they're going to keep finding things and they might find something new. And if they do, that's great, but I don't really need to be involved in it. The mm-hmm. thing was, is that I I did what I needed to do in 2010, mm-hmm. and I loved doing it, but now my special interest is autism, and it's it's helping people and advocating for the whole of our community, our tribe, our people, to help them get jobs, to help them feel like they fit in, that they're not aliens, that they're you know, that they're, they're, they're not broken or anything like that. And I do something else. But I I do have a special place in my heart for Robert Hitchens. And I loved my grandmother. I mean, she, that was his daughter. Mm-hmm. She was such a beautiful person. She had long, dark, curly hair, these lovely blue eyes. And, and even in the hospital when she was dying, um, I think it was about 1976, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I was there. She still had her nail varnish on. And she a few days later, she was going to be dead. She was a beautiful woman. And, and I've met some of the other, other relatives. I mean, you could write a book about writing the book. I could write <laughs> a book about writing the book because sure. I met family in Cornwall, you know, and and I've met so many amazing people. And and it was what was going through my head and, and the emotions, the you know, I was in tears and I was I was also terrified that I was going to have loads of Scots coming um, down in, in, with their kilts, rattling sabres and telling me off about what I'd said about um, William Murdoch. Um, and of course, it never happened and nothing really ever happened. You know, right. there's a lot of diehard Titanic people that say, mm-hmm. how dare you say that William Murdoch fell asleep and he was he'd drunk and he'd done all this. Well, I can do exactly what I like, thank you very much, because we live in a world where we have free speech. And I did some I did some research. But anyway, listen, I'm going on that. That's my ADHD going on there. Um, but it's very lovely to meet an, a fellow adhd It is. And I, I'll just quickly say Murdoch's my favorite officer. So, But I'm also aware that I don't know him personally. Anything is possible. I wasn't there. But... You mentioned that a lot of uh, people with autism like Titanic. Why yes. do you think that is? What is the What do you think is the draw with Titanic for neurodivergent people? What if I say what it was for me? Then maybe it would be the same for other people who are True. autistic. And um, it's like um, I love bird watching, and the birds that I like to watch are waders. 
who were at the shoreline. And the reason for that is because they all look the same, but they're all completely different. And they're one of the most difficult ones to research. Mm-hmm. With Titanic, the reason I think a lot of people like Titanic is because uh, people like the characters. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, any sitcom or anything that you've got your favorite characters. Sure. So that's really important. But it's also the high tech side of it. And I'm a, I, I'm a bit of what you might call a geezer bird. I, I, I'm quite masculine in my, in my way. And, and so when I do public speaking, if I'm in front of a women's institute, then I'll do a, a, a love story and I'll do it, I'll do it slightly different. Mm-hmm. If I'm in front of a, a, a men's business group, um, then I'll be much more technical and gory and, and everything else. So for people, whether they're, you know, you know, female, male or, or, you know, however, however they are, mm-hmm. um, it can be many things. It's um, how it sank. It, it could be to do with the rivets. It could be to do with the people. It can be to do with the engine room and the and the the firemen. It can be do. It it can be to do with the the history of it. It's it's timeless. Titanic is timeless. It's a timeless story. Um, I mean, for goodness' sake, there's been other um, there's been other shipwrecks. Mm-hmm. You know, the Lusitania was only a, a year or two after Titanic. Yeah, um, and it, it's just so so much was going on. If you imagine it now, mm-hmm. you would have a you would have a cruise ship. You'd have somebody like David Beckham. You know, Donald Trump. <laughs> I'd be good if he went down, but anyway, sorry. I'll just say, I don't think I would care at all if he went down on any ship. Take him. No, but there, there were your, there were your people that you loved on the ship, people that you didn't love. I mean, people love the Astors um, and the um, and the Strausses and people like that. There's so much of it. There's so much of it, and a lot of uh, Titanoracs or a lot of autistic people, they might focus on one particular bit. Mm-hmm. But I have personally come across, I, I, you know, I've been I've been on another two other podcasts about Titanic. Now that I'm autistic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> people know I'm autistic. In fact, now I'm autistic. So many other things are happening that are great, and I and yeah. I love isn't, that. Isn't it interesting how that works? Yeah, it's fantastic, and I certainly feel a hell of a lot better because um, I know I'm not broken. I know I'm not mad, bad, and dangerous to know. I'm a perfectly functioning human being that's wired differently, and and I've evolved differently a, a little bit, and all power to me. Yeah, and I've talked about this in my you know immediate life, but you know I have um, also a bipolar disorder. Okay, but. I was diagnosed with that in my 30s while I was already on a regiment of medication. In the past, when I've seen other people, one of the diagnoses floating around was um, borderline personality disorder. You know, another thing that I think people need to understand is that mental illness can change really drastically over time. Um, And your state can change depending on where you are at at the time. So it now can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can do. And age, you know, with age as well. Um, but the thing about this, we need a lot more research about this, because what yeah. I'm finding, I'm I'm in amongst some really um, fascinating, interesting academics within my neurodivergent community. And uh, I have my podcast as well called the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. 
and I am I interview I've interviewed 19 people um and you know the thing is is that I was misdiagnosed first time round and I I I didn't believe it you know people were saying childhood trauma autistic traits I mean what's autistic traits you're either autistic or you're not <laughs> but but two of the big sometimes um other diagnoses are bipolar and BPD and actually it turns out that it's not it's autism and the problem with that is medication we just have to be very very careful with human beings mm-hmm. what we do because you know we do know that um, you shouldn't be treating autism with SSRIs and with other medication because a lot of the reason that we might be anxious and traumatized and 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 stressed and depressed is because society doesn't understand us. Mm-hmm. So you know, and, and bipolar and BPD, they're they're very. It's all very very complex. But but I, I'm I'm so fascinated in that, specifically in trauma. So I'm I'm uh, reading up uh, with Gabor Mate and with Bessel van der Kolk, you know, and I'm learning about internal family systems. So when I have my clients, um, I have a particular technique called the rewind technique. I can help people with trauma. And a lot of the trauma is just not knowing who you are and not being understood through education, through parenting, through jobs. I know that's not t- Titanic related, but mental health you know, I, I feel so much stronger now. Yeah. I, knowing. In the same way that Titanic's a humans, it's a human story. Humans deal with mental health and mental illness, no matter what year, you know, we're yes. 110 years away from the Titanic, but we haven't cured mental illness. We found a lot more diagnoses. We found a lot more medications. We found a lot more names and treatments and therapies, but we haven't managed to eradicate any of that. We still have PTSD we still have, you know, generational trauma. And, you know, as they're finding more and more, generational trauma isn't just, you know, my mom was mean to me. It is back and back and back and it back. Is. They mean generational. So you could think back to the, you know, is it is it is it not relevant to the Titanic? Because if you are part of a family lineage that had a deep scar from an event like that, it makes sense to me that it is still lingering today if, with everything we know about mental health. Yeah, and this, you know, I'm a, and this is in the research. This is mm-hmm. Bessel van der Kolk and Gabor Mate. But where we are now, in the world we are now, mm-hmm. it's quite catastrophic and it's very, very worrying. And I am a, very much a glass is half full and I'm going to live every day as it's my last. But Great. the world is very stressed and the world is very traumatised. Things keep happening and... Yeah. And, and 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 it's terrible. I mean, we we see it in obesity, we see it in PTSD and trauma, uh, we see it in suicide and lots of other things as well. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm 57. I don't particularly think I'm going to be. I don't want to be 85 and you know really old and ancient. I'm quite happy to be around. I'm 57. Give me another 20 years, I'll be happy. But in the time that I'm on the planet, my job my legacy, my reason for being here is to help others. And, and that is what, that is what I do. And now I'm in Somerset, which is a much more diverse and alternative type of environment suits me to the ground, more blue hair, more piercings, more tattoos. Thank you very much. I'm amongst people who are more like me. And even though I don't have the piercings and the blue hair and the tattoos, they're on the inside. (laughs) So 
Yeah, yeah. So I know who I am, and and poor old Robert, you know, he just yeah. he he just had such a bad run of it, and and if only Titanic hadn't happened, yeah, you know, if only Titanic hadn't happened, and he hadn't been a scapegoat, hadn't been sort of forced into things that happened to him where it, he. I mean, it must have been the most terrible thing. In in ADHD, we have this thing called rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And yeah, and, and 50%, I did a test on it, and 50% of me, it doesn't matter. Rejection and criticism, it flows over me. I don't care. And this was right in the book. All these people were throwing daggers at me metaphorically and saying, you're wrong and you're rubbish and you're shite and sorry, excuse me. And you're oh, all this kind of stuff and everything else. Mm-hmm. And it didn't bother me because I'm strong. And, you know, and I can take that rejection, but the other rejection to do with the emotional side, Mm -hmm. um, people close to me or unfairness and injustice Mm -hmm. that will, it it can be crippling. And actually people with RSD can end their lives because that rejection and criticism is too much that they can take. So if, and I'm only saying a Big if, mm-hmm. if Robert Hitchens did have at the very least ADHD and he was rejected and vilified and, and, and people were saying he was a coward and a bully and he was ta- drinking the whiskey and taking the blanket and an awful person mm-hmm. and these things kept happening. It's not surprising he wanted to finish him, finish it. Another reason why I think he could have been ADHD. But mm-hmm. look, you know, that is literally just, um, it's just a thought and we will never know. We will right. never know. that. It's not a bad guess though, because people do, especially if you've already come from a long sort of lifetime of rejection, or if people want to get weird about it, quote unquote, perceived rejection, if you think. Yes, yes, yeah. It is, there is perceived in RSD, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even I've reflected back on some situations, you know, 10 years later and been like, well, but I don't have the world's best long-term memory, so that doesn't happen often, but... And there's big holes in the in the memory, isn't there? It's yeah. like, but you know something I just want to add because I know we're, we're, we're going to be ending soon. Is that I discovered that my mom, um, she both my parents are dead now, and my mom, um, I think she was like me. I think she was autistic and ADHD, and um, but she's the, the other side of my family, you know. Mm-hmm. And my father, I don't think he was neurodivergent because we it was very difficult within my family because um, my mum couldn't really handle my emotion, emotional outburst. So she'd hand me over to my dad and he didn't understand. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean to say it didn't jump her generation and, and, and everything else. And maybe my dad did, but I don't think he did from what I know about ADHD. Okay. But I do think that you're right that, you know, the trauma... Trauma does. It's not necessarily that your mum was an alcoholic or, or anything. I think if if it's that bigger trauma, and not just the the incident of Titanic, mm-hmm. but he was all, he was more traumatized by what happened after Titanic mm-hmm. than what happened in Titanic. And the other thing is is that um, I think he already had neurasthenia 
And neurasthenia, one of the things with neurasthenia is when you're taken out of your environment and put into a completely different environment. So he was in a fishing village in Newlyn in a small, tight, religious, close-knit family unit. Mm -hmm. And he was then put in Southampton, which was huge, busy, loads and loads and loads of stuff going on. And then he was put in South South Africa, Africa. which was hot, 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 hot. So if he already struggled with whatever he had, all that on top of it, I mean, it's just a powder keg. Yeah. it. I happen to think both my parents are neurodivergent. I don't think they're ever going to listen to my show, so I can say whatever I want. Um, <laughs> yeah, good for you. Yeah, it's like I don't think they... I've told them about the show. It's not like it's a secret, but there's been absolutely no, hey, where can I listen to it? And I'm like, that's fine. You hear I know how that feels. Yeah, <laughs> but also, to be fair... Yeah, they don't care. But also, like, they hear me talk all the time. So I guess they're like, we don't need another excuse. Thank you. But (laughs) it it, it just, for me, it helps. And I will also say my parents did a really good job raising me. I, you know, they didn't try to, like, squash anything out of me. Yeah. Obviously, looking back on it, there are things that I'm like, you should have done very differently. And they caused me trauma, but they weren't terrible and it's because they learn from their experience and so on and so on so every you know every generation tries harder but every generation does come with its own trauma and I think what I find most impressive about people now especially people like you is the fact that you are wanting to understand that whole person it's not just I want to tell a bullet point story of how his life went a to b it's who was this man that the majority of the world saw for all of seven minutes on screen maximum in a major yeah. blockbuster. And, uh, and that's not an easy task. It isn't, but um, I, you know, I hope you don't mind, but you know, obviously no. I've got this, I'm going to yeah. try and send you a book. I, I literally probably only have about five. Not that that, that doesn't matter at all, but I want to sign it for you. I was about to say, I want to buy a signed coffee from you. No, you don't. <laughs> Don't be silly. I'll send it to you. But um, there's another way of um, of doing this, if you can bear listening to my voice, is um, uh, it, the book is called The Man Who Sank Titanic. Mm-hmm. We know the man didn't sank Titanic, but, you know, I'm never backwards and coming forwards. You look at that on the bookshelf and you're going to pick it up. I want people to read the story of my, my great grandfather, yeah. but you can get it on Audible now. Great. And so for, for lots of neurodivergent people, especially who are um, they're not such good readers, if they're dyslexic, the, the words are quite small, mm-hmm. um, very small. Um, but, you know, you can listen to it on Audible um, and it's me narrating. But um, you have a great voice. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I drive people mad. This is a funny thing, isn't it? About uh, I'm, I'm Marmite. This is what we say in, in England. You know, I'm Marmite. You either love me or you hate me. <laughs> I've never had Marmite. Oh, wait, I have one time and I didn't like it. Oh, no. I, some people, I, when I saw my, my Swedish grandmother, mm-hmm. she nearly threw up. It's, <laughs> but I, because I'm really into taste, I'm really into um, very, very, um, very, very sweet, the sweetest sweets, mm. which have um, really mucked up my teeth. I'm <laughs> really savory, unami, you know, very, very savory, savory. Yeah. No. I do like, I'm, I'm picky with certain tastes. It's like, I didn't hate it, but I would not order it on a thing. If someone gave it to me at their house, they were like, here, I've made you a Marmite sandwich. I would eat some of it and be like, thanks. But, uh. Gosh, you're brave. 
it's uh, it's not the worst thing I've ever eaten. I think that's all, that's the only reason I can handle it. You know, stock cubes, beef stock cubes. Yeah, um, yes. Oxo is our brand, and they came mm-hmm. in a little foil wrap, and they just this little um, thing. Yep, when we- I was a kid, um, I used to have one in my pocket, and I used to eat it during the day. <laughs> Or I would have Lipton's tea sherbet and have that as well. And now this is this came out when I found out I was autistic. Is I used to eat willow tree, brick, sand, grass, bones, hair, rubber bands. Um, yeah, I wasn't. I've never been a chew eater. That that hasn't been my thing. I used to be a nail biter, but I I trained myself out of that somehow. And now all I do is jiggle and swing around constantly. So I knock into things, knock things over, spill things. It's great for a podcasting host to be making noise. And I broke both my, I got beat you to that one. I broke both my ankles in 2020 (gasps) walking out of my back door. Ow. And one of them was dislocated. It was, it was going at right angles. I know. I'm Ooh. sorry. I'm really sorry. Well, I, I completely dislocated my shoulder before. So yeah, yeah. and it's so the squeamish worst. and disgusting. And the morphine yeah. didn't work. It was totally rubbish. And uh, yeah, that wasn't much fun. So yeah, I, I'm because I, we've just moved. I'm sporting a thousand bruises at the moment. <laughs> That's part of our wonderful world. Yeah, we need space, don't we? We we need space. We do. And I, I I live in a little basement apartment, which has been doing fine for me, but I eventually do need my own space because I don't have enough. I keep running into things. I also get bruises. I haven't knocked over my Lego Titanic yet, but I'm concerned. Oh, I love happen. Lego. I love Lego. It was I've just fun. been to a Lego conference and there's one where I live in, um, in August, oh, cool. but I just build houses. Oh, nice. I, this is the first Lego model I've ever bought. Um, it was a weird impulse by I've always wanted it so it came back in stock and I got it but yeah I've never built a Lego model before it's been fun I've always like can you send me a picture uh send me a picture of it I will I will send you a picture because it's it's a little out of my sight but I also don't want to keep you too long because I know it's a little it's a little later your time I think no it's okay but um you know I don't want your audience to get bored either because an hour is quite a long time no but (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. It has been amazing to talk to you. I cannot wait to read your book. Everyone should go read about it because it is important to know the people that are part of the thing that we like, are part of its history. We should know who they are, who they really are. And thank you so much for inviting me. And And the book's got loads of other stuff in it. You know, mm-hmm. you, you may not know everything. You, you may think you know everything about Titanic, but there's some stuff in there that you might not know. Um, send me your address and I'll, I'll, I'll get a signed copy over to you. Oh, and um, just really, really grateful for you giving me the time to to talk. And I love all your, I'm looking at you. I've got one of those plaques uh, myself that you've got there. And yeah. I can see all your little figurines and, and, and your room looks absolutely lovely. Oh, thank you. It's my little collector's haven. And I have and your my lovely chair and your, yeah, yeah it looks great. Awesome. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I really need to thank Sally so much for coming on. And what's um, really exciting for me is that on a future episode, I'm going to be talking to her cousin, Simon Medhurst, who, um, unlike Sally, did not grow up knowing he was the great grandson of Robert Hitchens. Um, That's going to be another really, really fun interview. But again, I cannot overstate how grateful I am to Sally for coming on the show to talk to me. And please get in touch with her if you she's an amazing person uh you can follow her on instagram that's titanic underscore robert dot 
Hitchens, H-I-C-H-E-N-S, and that is Instagram. You can also find her on her website, which is freshstart.me, M-E, dot U-K. And if you're interested in her book, her book is called The Man Who Sank Titanic. Um, it, it's, it, it, which is, it's a great book. Uh, she's an amazing person. She's absolutely wonderful. And I thank her so much for coming on. You should, guys should go check her out. Um, in the meantime, before the next episode, you should like and follow the show on all the socials, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. The username is Titanic Talkline, all one word. And send me an email if you want to get in touch. That's TitanicTalkline at gmail.com. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word, Titanic Talkline. T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!